0: I don't think if you try that you could count the amount of distractions these days um, from the you know, innocuous ones that aren't necessarily out uh, to do you any kind of harm to the ones that are just abs- objectively um, detrimental. Just the, the countless things clamoring for our attention, the countless things oftentimes of this earth. There are a number of things that have happened this year that have required our attention because they have relevance to the kingdom. They're of spiritual importance because they affect people's hearts and their minds and their souls. Um, But then there's just a lot of noise. A lot of things of this earth that can take our eyes from the things above and set them here on the things that are below in ways that they should not be. We certainly ought to be mindful of the world around us, mindful of those, uh, the circumstances of others who are around us, because we care for them as God has taught us to. They are his creation ever, ever as much as we are. We ought to love them and seek the, the salvation of their souls. But There are many earthly things that could draw our attention to them. And cause us to not be focused on the kingdom of heaven in the way that we should be. Uh, and that's what I'd like for us to talk about this morning. I'd like to talk about our, our spiritual sight. When you look back to the Old Testament. Um, it is shocking. Just how often Egypt becomes an issue for God's people. In one way or another. Um, there was just something about Egypt for God's people. In, in, in one way or the other, it seems to have just been a, a magnet to them, uh, just in, in, in concept and even in reality. And that seems to go all the way back, even to the very beginning of God's people. I'm going to give you a few examples. When Abraham comes into the promised land for the very first time, he's greeted with a famine. And so you'll remember what he does. He goes to Egypt. In the next chapter, when Abraham and Lot are dividing up because the land's resources have proved insufficient and the servants are beginning to fight with each other, they stand at a high place and they look out at the land to make a decision as to where they're each going to go. Lot looks down. And sees a portion of land that the text describes as being like the land of Egypt. And so Lot chooses that. A couple of chapters later, when Sarah realizes she is barren, or Sarah, Sarah realizes she is barren and that she can't have any children, again, metaphorically at least this time, they choose Egypt in the form of an Egyptian person named Hagar. In each of those examples, the seeming fruitfulness of Egypt stands in contrast with the apparent barrenness of what God has currently provided. So Every single time, Egypt, the things of Egypt, look better to God's people than what God himself has prepared for them. And in each of those instances, Egypt is chosen. Something else that all of those occurrences have in common is that bad things happen when the choice of Egypt is made. Abraham, as you might recall, nearly loses his wife to Pharaoh's harem. If God doesn't intervene the way that he does, I don't think it was likely that Abraham was going to get her back. Lot, as you'll well remember, uh, in addition to being carried away as a captive of war, has his home destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah, and his wife is lost to him as well in that same destruction. His daughters are lost to the moral destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because he chose the land that looked like Egypt. When Abraham uh, has a child through his union with the Egyptian woman, the child named Ishmael, that causes problems almost immediately for his family. Even before Ishmael's born, it starts to cause trouble with his mother and Abram's wife because of her jealousy. And all of those troubles continue through Ishmael's life. They continue throughout the history of Egypt as the the sons of of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael continue to come into conflict with each other. And frankly, those conflicts continue even to this day. So looking at some of these things, you'd... Like to think that by Moses' time, centuries later, the children of Abraham would have learned, let us not put our trust in Egypt. Let us put our trust in God and his promises. And yet you turn your pages to, to, to the point in which Moses is featured and, and that's not what you find. Instead, you'll find them standing in the Red Sea, for example, on the verge of the Exodus saying we are trapped There's nowhere for us to go. Why didn't you leave us alone, Moses, and let us stay in Egypt like we wanted to? But God saves them. He takes them through the wilderness. He takes them right to the gate of the promised land. And when you find them standing at the Jordan, trembling because of the reports from the spies of the forces they're going to have, or the peoples they're going to have to overcome in the land of Canaan, Again, they say, we can't go in there. We can't do this. All is lost. Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Even before that point, from everywhere in between, when they were leaving Egypt and arriving there at Canaan, when they were hungry, they wanted to go back to Egypt. When they were thirsty, they wanted to go back to Egypt When God gave them food, and they got tired of that food, and they wanted something different, they wanted to go back to Egypt. So the high points and and everywhere in between, that's what they're wanting to do. They're wanting to go back to Egypt. And ultimately, that's going to get them killed. God finally has had enough. He says, you know what? You want to pick a leader and go back to Egypt? You think you're going to die in the wilderness? That's fine. You can die in the wilderness. Every single one of you in this generation is not going to go into the promised land because you didn't trust that I could take you there. If you don't want to go, you won't go. When the next generation rises up and Moses is, is standing before them, when he's summing up all of these things. What he says about Egypt in Deuteronomy 16 and verse 17 is the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Never go that way again. Stay here in the promised land where God is taking you. So you would look at that. You'd look at what happened with the patriarchs. You'd look at how clearly God is making this point. And you'd think, all right, that's going to do it. They're going to learn. The future generations of the Israelites, they'll have gotten the drift. They'll have come to the understanding of what's going on. We must not put our trust in Egypt. We must trust in God's promises. But no. Um, As the Assyrian armies are closing in on the northern kingdom of Israel, you find Isaiah addressing the very same problem. Because they're still wanting to put their trust in Egypt. In Isaiah 31 and verse 3, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall. So your enemies and their allies, they will all perish together. Not to put too fine a point on it. But then when the southern kingdom of Judah, when its time comes, they don't learn any better than the northern kingdom does. You'd like to think that they would have looked up to their, 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 their relatives to the, what happened to the northern kingdom and make a different decision, and yet they don't. In Jeremiah's day, he has to prophesy about the very same thing. Uh, the entirety of the 42nd chapter is given to warning Judah against looking to Egypt. And specifically, just to give you an example, verse 19 says, The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, to you who are left... Do not go to Egypt. Don't put your trust there. Stay in the promised land like God has always told you to do. And so the question that I want us to answer this morning is, what on earth was wrong with these people? Why did it take them hundreds and hundreds of years to learn the lesson that perhaps they should have grasped just with Abraham going down there? And the things that happen. And what God teaches them from just that. I want to suggest to you that these people were spiritually nearsighted. They couldn't see past the nose on their faces. The children of Israel had a very hard time remembering God's previous successes. And also their previous failures. Oftentimes they came uh, as a matched pair. They had a hard time envisioning any kind of reality to God's future promises coming to pass. They, they clung to them, they said they expected them, but each time they came, including all the way up to the Christ himself, they didn't recognize it. All throughout the Old Testament, it seems that all the children of Israel could really see was right, what was right in front of them at that very moment. And, and all the decisions that they make every single time seem to be based on, on that one thing. What stands before me right now? What looks best right now? I think I'll choose Egypt instead. One of the things the devil seems most uh, skilled at doing is making the things of this world appear more promising than the promises of the almighty God do to us. That seems to be something of his go-to move. If God's promises always appeared to be the very best thing for us, from our own perspective, if it was just, well, that's obvious, that's the one you choose, then we would always choose God's promises. But Satan is very good at making Egypt look better than the promises of God. You might recall that when Jesus was here on this earth during his preaching, he spent a fair amount of time discussing the matter of the cost of discipleship. In Luke 14 and verse 26, Jesus warns the ones who are listening to him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We often make the point that when Jesus says, hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, that he doesn't actually mean he wants you to hate them. And that is, of course, true. There are plenty of other scriptures about the importance of loving your family to the extent that you'd even give your life for them and sacrifice what you want for them. But the idea that that next to your love for Jesus Christ, even your love for those of your own family would almost be as far as hate is from love is, is what's being discussed here. That's how devoted Jesus is asking us to be. and Anyone who wants to be devoted to him or says they do needs to understand that. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So whoever does not count the world as loss to be my disciple is, is unfit. Continuing in that same text for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Now, I've never actually desired to build a tower, but I can relate well enough. Anything you're going to set out to do, you've got to make sure that you're prepared to do it, willing to pay the cost. He goes on to say towards the end of that small section, therefore, any of you, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You say you want to follow me. You've got to understand what that involves. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, he told someone else who said that they wanted to follow him, but indicated that he obviously had divided loyalties. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back like Israel was constantly doing with Egypt is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus makes it very clear that there can be nothing that divides your loyalty, whether it is money or, or just relations with friends in this world, social standing, that kind of thing, possessions, even family. You can have nothing in your life that represents a second string in the bow. You come to Christ without reservations. Because when you come to Jesus in part, that's not coming to Jesus at all. So what he asks of me, what he expects of me, is that I reject every... Egyptian option that ever arises in my life and choose the promises of God. And part of the reason for that, as we mentioned, is because the way of Egypt always seems to lead to disaster. But the promises of God, regardless, and this is a key point, regardless of how they appear to me today from my very limited human perspective, promises of God are, in fact, the only sure things that there are. In all of creation. The way of Egypt. Leads to destruction. But the promises of God lead to certain life. So the Israelites were a people who were spiritually nearsighted. What I want us to consider next is someone who was spiritually farsighted. I realize when you're getting glasses you really don't want to be either one of those. But in this case farsighted is the right choice. Um, and there may be no better example of such a person than Paul, who we've been spending a lot of time with recently as we've been working our way through the book of Acts in our Wednesday evening class. Um, as a matter of fact, last, uh, or just a couple of days ago on our, in our class, we referenced, uh, Philippians chapter one, which was our scripture reading that Wendell read from before the service this morning. Um, and what I'd like for us to return to just now, um, Philippians chapter 1 and specifically verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You may remember just from your studies of Philippians before, or perhaps also from from our discussion on Wednesday, that Paul's in prison when he writes these things. Um, We've seen what he's endured. And he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served... To advance the gospel so that verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole praetorian, your version may say, or imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So as Paul's writing this epistle, he's a little bit further on down the road than where we are in the book of Acts. He's in prison there in Rome. It's obviously not a good place to be. Prison at any time, prison in any culture, but it was certainly far worse then than it is now. This is not the age of the ACLU. As Paul is writing this letter, there are not any interests that I'm aware of in prisoners' rights. certainly not any that caught any kind of steam or built up any steam. It's just a lousy place to be. But Paul is not just in prison. He is, as you'll remember from our class, in prison ultimately after initially being arrested for something that he absolutely didn't even do to begin with. A truly innocent man. We've been studying this portion where Paul is arrested because he supposedly took a a, a Greek person into the temple where Greeks are not allowed to go. Of course, he didn't do that. And that just leads one thing to another. While he's there in prison back in Judea, there's an attempt made on his life. And some of the Jews are so serious about taking Paul out of the, out of the picture. You might recall they get together and they make a vow that we're not going to eat or drink anything until Paul's dead. That's just how malicious and murderous some of Paul's opponents were in their hearts. He manages to escape from that. But then the authorities are just more interested in serving the Jews than they are in, in serving truth. So they kind of intentionally forget about him for a couple of years and leave him in prison without any way out. To where finally what is left to Paul is to appeal to Rome. And so he's sent there. As we've just studied on the way he's shipwrecked. And as we'll look at uh, Wednesday evening, once he, they finally make safe harbor on an island, he's bitten by an extremely poisonous snake. It's just one thing after another. And all of this leads up to him eventually being here in this prison in Rome. Um, All of it because of something that he didn't even actually do. So it isn't hard to look at Paul's situation and think it really could not get much worse for Paul. Ultimately, all this is going to lead to his end. So physically speaking, yeah, it really couldn't get much worse. But Paul looks at the same situation. And he says, This sure is good. This is good. Even here in this prison, the gospel's being spread. There's a group of people here, the imperial guard, who get to hear about Jesus when they might not have heard about him otherwise. The gospel's being proclaimed to people who might otherwise not have heard the good news. On top of that, because I'm in prison, the brethren are, who are, are, are free are, are being encouraged to speak the gospel more boldly. They see what one of their brothers would, would do for the cause of Christ. They see that even in, in these kinds of situations, the gospel can still be proclaimed. And that's just, in, that's just bolstered their faith all the more. So Paul looks at his imprisonment and he says, my imprisonment is furthering the cause of Christ. He looks at the same situation that we could look at and think this is just about as bad a situation for him to be in. And he doesn't see the chains, at least as much as he sees the gospel being spread. Continuing in that same chapter in verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, though others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what then? Basically, so, so what of it? What's our conclusion to be? His conclusion is only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So physically, it really couldn't be much worse for Paul than it already was, except for the fact that while he's there in prison, there are people outside preaching the gospel with with evil motives in their heart towards him as if he's not going through enough. They're specifically preaching out of envy and rivalry rivalry with Paul thinking this is some kind of competition and now they can seize their moment. So they're wanting to advance their own prominence at the expense of Paul. They're trying to bring pressure on him, trying to aggravate the situation, trying to undermine his influence, trying to stir up even more suffering for him, more affliction on him as a prisoner. And all of this in the name, supposedly, of preaching the gospel of Christ. And it'd be quite easy, again, to look at that and say, this is just about as bad and as low as you can get it. At least physically speaking, this is the low point of Paul's life. But from what he says, Paul looks at the same situation. He says, so so what then? In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. That's what. What Paul sees, though I'm sure he wasn't blind to it. But what Paul sees, what he focuses on most, is not the harm that they intend for him. But the souls who are hearing the gospel. Even there, there are people who might not otherwise have heard, had a chance to hear it at all, who are getting to hear the truth of, of God's word. In verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see how that's completely reversed. Our desires for Paul to escape the situation, for justice to be served for Paul, for Paul to be set free. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. So if this ends up in my death, that's actually the better of the two options that stand before me. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul knows execution is a very real way that this imprisonment might end. As to whether or not it does, whether this is his first Roman imprisonment or his second one, we won't go down into all of that. Um, But but how would you and I look at this if we were in that position? Here he is in prison for something he didn't even do. And he might get killed for it. The injustice of that, right? But Paul doesn't really seem to spend a whole lot of time worrying about that. He says, if I live, then Christ will be magnified. If I die, then Christ will be magnified. If I live, I get to be with you. If I die, I get to be with God. So even when he's faced with his own mortality, what stands uh, uh, front and center before his own vision is not his own death. It's eternal life. There's just a tremendous difference between Paul and the Israelites. Paul goes through situations that, that are different, but they're every bit as bad as the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt and going to Canaan. He certainly has legitimate concerns that he could voice a complaint about, and no one would ever think anything less of him for doing so. But he never seems to be concerned with the present. Paul was spiritually farsighted. So unlike the Israelites who seem to make all of their decisions and voice all of their complaints based on the here and now, and govern their lives based on what was exactly in front of them at that very moment, Paul sees past that. It's hard to find a point when his focus is ever on his immediate circumstances. Perhaps maybe a a request for a cloak to keep him warm comes to mind. For example, this is how Paul describes his, his outlook in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 and following. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed daily. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We've been looking through the book of Acts at all the stuff Paul has gone through. Light momentary affliction, he says. So one of the most destructive lies that the devil can tell us is getting us to believe that the the things that are physical are the things that are real. And the things that are spiritual are the things that are um, sort of ephemeral and imaginary. And as soon as we believe that, as soon as we fall into that trap, that what is more substantive is what I can see. As soon as I fall prey to that lie, that what I can see, what I can feel, those things are what is is, is as real as real gets, then I'm always going to make my decisions based on that. And what I'm going to find myself doing is choosing Egypt again and again, just like the Israelites did over and over. Paul knows better. He knows that the things that are unseen at the moment, that those are the things that are lasting. That those things that are unseen, they must be his focus Is ambition. Those are the things that need to be our aim. Our hope. Our vision. As that song goes that we sing. And I would have led this morning. But I think I led it last time we had song leading. Be thou my vision. The rub in all of this. Is that it is a lot easier. To be more like the Israelites. Than to be like Paul. It is not our. Our. Like natural way of of thinking, to look at the physical, to look at the tangible as less significant than the invisible. So just the very nature of something being invisible means it's something I can't see. I can't grab a hold of it. I can't focus on it in the same way. So how do I make myself more like Paul and less like the Israelites? Well, the same way we've looked to Paul as the the teacher in this principle, I think uh, let's let him be our teacher in the application as well. So still in Philippians, Over in chapter 4, Paul goes on to say to those Christians, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So there are three things that Paul suggests here very quickly that will help us in being more like him in our spiritual sight. First of all, he says we need to pray. Prayer is an absolute necessity if you want to become even half as spiritually farsighted as Paul was. And I think the reason for that is probably obvious. Of course, by praying about this, we're petitioning God's help for this. And God's help in anything, especially something like this matter, is, is critical. But more than that, or along with that I should say, prayer itself is something that you do that's based completely on focusing... On the invisible. It is taking your time and your focus and your meditation and your energy and giving it to God who we can't see and thinking about him. And how much more difficult is it going to be for us then to, to focus on the visible in our present circumstances when we are frequently thinking to the throne of heaven. How much more challenging is it going to be for us to focus on the here and now and what is visible to our eyes when we are busy, frequently focusing on the greatest invisible that there is? The second thing Paul says is that we need to meditate on the good and eternal things. So what are the kind of thoughts that can keep you from being wrapped up in your immediate circumstances? Paul gives you a few ideas, things that can take your mind off of the things of this world, give you eternal perspective. Those things that are true, those things that are honorable and just and pure. One of the biggest distractions this year for me has been my Facebook account. I have that account because it keeps me in touch with a lot of people that I care a lot about. I get to see pictures of their kids. I get to see how they're doing. Pictures of their breakfast occasionally. Um, But a lot of good things that help me feel connected with those folks that are a long way off. I suspect that's why everybody in this room, if you have any kind of social media account, that's why you have it. People that you love, that you get to to stay in touch with a little bit better. But oh, the trouble that stuff has brought over the last year and, and, and then some. Um, I, I have a few friends every single year that say it's time for me to step away and they, they, they put their account on, on hibernate and then then they, they, you don't see them anymore for a while. There's been a whole lot more of that this year. Um, I'll tell you what this year has been an exercise in with, with so many different hot button issues that you might want to comment about and wade into those, those waters. Um, it's been real good practice to make the decision to delete the whole paragraph and either pray for them or read the scriptures instead. Frankly, do anything else sometimes, but take my mind off of that which is troubling me and take that trouble to the God of heaven or to set my mind on things that are honorable and pure and true. It's the anchor that you need in the midst of the, the storm that this year has felt to many to be. So how much more difficult will it be for us to focus on the merely physical things of this world if our meditation is on those things that are commendable, and excellent and worthy of praise? You might find yourself thinking a bit more like Paul. Look at all these opportunities to spread the gospel. What a great year this has been. Thirdly, something that Paul says is to imitate himself, which I like. If you want to be more like Paul, go be more like Paul. So look at what he did, listen to what he taught, which is not, of course, Paul's way of holding himself up as the model. It is, I've, I've tried to live my life in such a way as to give you an example of what it looks like to follow the teachings of Christ. So emulate me as I have emulated the Lord. So look at what he did. Listen to what he taught. See the things that he practices in his life and, and make decisions based on that. So sometimes we might bemoan our, our, our situation in this life. Um, what I said a moment ago about what a good year at least from the perspective of the kingdom, this year could be considered to be. I mean, there's not substantial things going, in the lives of, going on in the lives of many. Um, health issues that some are facing, that some of our number are facing right now. Some of your family have faced the loss of jobs. The tremendous difficulties that you have been through are significant. What am I going to do with that? It is my situation. It is the situation either God has allowed me to be in or that God has put me in. What am I going to do with that? Am I going to focus on the difficulties of it and bemoan the situation and make nothing more of that? Am I just going to see the cloud or am I going to demand the silver lining of what I can do for the kingdom of God because of what's taking place? How I can, allow my, how I can help my faith be bolstered and grow because of what, what the test is that I'm currently facing. So sometimes, just in life in general, 2020 aside, we can bemoan our situation in this life and maybe even bemoan the kind of person that we've become and bemoan the habits that we've we've taken into our, our character. And so much of that's based on the decisions that we have made leading up to that point. So then the time comes where we need to make new decisions. If you want to be someone else, Kind of the first thing you've got to do is decide to be that person, really decide. And then start to go do the kinds of things that you need to do to be that person. So if you want to be like Paul, then start being like Paul. And then there's one more passage that I think can help us out in being more spiritually farsighted and less concerned. With our immediate circumstances in Romans chapter eight, verse 28, Paul says to the Roman church there. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is the kind of assurance that is is so wonderful that everyone here has heard it and quoted it and thought about it many times in their life. It is certainly the kind of passage that can help us focus on the invisible. But may I suggest to you that this verse will not do that if we think about this verse in an earthly way. Have you ever heard anybody treat this verse as an everything's going to be okay, Disney movie, happily ever after sort of thing? Everything's going to work out for good, for my good, for my... um, Relatively nearby immediate good as I perceive good, as I understand good to be. Everything's going to be just fine in my immediate physical circumstances. If I'll hold out, I'll have more trust in the Lord. If I will love the Lord, then all this is going to turn out great for me physically. I would suggest to you that the way we need to read this verse is with an understanding of how its author lived it. And I mean both its physical author and its spiritual author who inspired it. There is no better illustration of how Paul lived this passage and how Paul lived the principle that's contained within it than to look at what we looked at a moment ago in Philippians 1. Things are bad. I'm in prison. But that's okay because the gospel's being spread here. So, how easy would it have been for Paul to interpret this passage? The way that some like to interpret this passage. Imagine what he might have said. You know, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. But you have heard of the angel that he sent to rescue Peter from prison when he faced certain death. And you yourselves know about the earthquake that rescued Silas and I from the Philippian jail. And I am confident that God will do something like that once more to rescue me from these dire circumstances. When it comes to working out for good, what could be better for him in the early church than for him to be set free, vindicated, and for him to continue living? But that is not what Paul says. That's not what he thinks. His focus is not on the immediate physical things in those circumstances of his life. His focus is on God's eternal purpose. That's the good he sees. What is good for the kingdom, the gospel being spread, souls hearing about Jesus and glory being given to God. then because God is so gracious, no matter how this life may turn out for us, that glory gets to be ours as well. And that is good. So Romans 8 verse 28 is a phenomenal passage that can teach you a lot about spiritual farsightedness. But it can do the exact opposite. If I make the mistake of thinking of it in those personal, immediate, physical, and perhaps we could even say selfish terms. I need to understand this passage the way Paul lived it. And to do that, I need to understand good the same way that Paul did. All things will work together for the good of God's plan. And I need to feel as Paul felt just blessed to have a role in it. And may God help us to be more like Paul in that way. Really appreciate your attention this morning. I hope very much that the things we've studied today will help you throughout the week, if not beyond. Maybe something of a motto for us this week is I can do all or I do all things to the, to the glory of God. And I'm blessed to do what I can. I know some of you have not been having an easy time this year and certainly what you've been going through matters to your brethren. I hope you know that. I hope we show each other that. Um, I certainly think you show me and my family your concerns for us. Um, But it is a wonderful thing that no matter what you're going through, no matter the severity of the challenge or even the tragedy, that there is always something good that can be done, something good that can be brought of it. For If you'll forgive the metaphor a silver lining to even the darkest of clouds, there is always hope and good and the purpose of the kingdom that can be served no matter what's going on in this life. And I'd also point out that no matter what is going on in this life, eternal life is what you and I are waiting for. And if we will be spiritually farsighted and focus upon the eternal, it'll be much more difficult for us to get wrapped up and bogged down, depressed and burdened by anything of the here and now. Imagine coming to the end of this year And because of spiritual maturity, being able to think, you know, it has been challenging, it has been rough, there has been loss, and there has been sorrow. But think of all the good that's also come as well. May God help us to be that spiritually mature. If you're not a Christian this morning, I I hope you will set your sights on heaven today. And if we can study with you about what the Bible says you need to do to live pleasing to God. We'd love to do that, do so safely, Zoom, FaceTime, or six feet of distance, whatever it takes. Um, But if you know what the Bible asks of you to become a Christian, and you're ready to confess your faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and be immersed into his blood for the forgiveness of those sins, we'd love to help you do that today, to set your eyes on the things that are above and take them away from the things here on this earth. However, we may help you be uh, more focused on God this morning. Please let us know while we stand and sing.